Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life, the U.S. Chess Federation's podcast that goes behind the scenes and more in-depth about each month's issue of Chess Life magazine. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Chess podcasts, which include One Move at a Time on the second Tuesday of each month, in which I talk to people who are advancing our mission statement, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month and that is hosted by our Women's Program Director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant Director of National Events, Pete Karianis, in which she examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org, or subscribe via Google or Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Our guest this month is Menachem Wecker, who wrote this story, Inhibition and Intuition, in our March issue of Chess Life, which is a special issue devoted to accessibility issues. I'm going to read a much longer introduction than usual, because Wecker is a professional journalist with wide-ranging credits beyond the chess world, and I think it's important to restore journalists to their rightful place in this era where the industry is being unfairly criticized. Wecker is a Washington, D.C.-based journalist who's interviewed Mel Brooks about herring and has covered everything from Einstein's and Gandhi's footwear and the origin of museum taxidermies to events that endanger museum collections and Zoroastrian dating. His Playboy feature told of infiltrating the CIA's secret art collection in the January-February 2017 issue, and in the March 3, 2019 Washington Post magazine feature, he investigated the degree to which some of the nation's preeminent museums flag effectively which objects are real and which are copies. In September 2017, Wecker was part of an Atlantic team that won second prize in enterprise religion reporting from the Religion News Association. He holds four first-place awards, one in 2019, two in 2018, and one in 2015, a second place in 2017, and an honorable mention in 17, from the Catholic Press Association for his reporting on art and on social justice, particularly worker dignity and rights. In 2019, and previously in 2018, he was awarded a National Press Club Vivian Award, which recognizes members who demonstrate extraordinary commitment to the club. He is a member of the club's Board of Governors. A former full-time education reporter at U.S. News & World Report who covered arts and religion on a freelance basis for Houston Chronicle for nearly five years, Wecker reports on culture, the arts, religion, education, as well as other beats. His writing has also appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Columbia Journalism Review, Chronicle of Higher Education, America, Religion News Services, Christian Science Monitor, and Mormon Times. Wecker co-wrote an arts column for the Jewish Press for eight and a half years, and with Brandon Withrow, he is co-author of the 2014 book, Consider No Evil, Two Faith Traditions and the Problem of Academic Freedom in Religious Higher Education. He holds a master's in art history from George Washington University and an English degree from Yeshiva University. He is trained as an artist at Massachusetts College of Art, School for the Museum of Fine Arts, Boston, and the Art Institute of Boston. He is a member of the National Press Club, International Association of Art Critics, Religion News Association, and Education Writers Association. And with that lengthy introduction, welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life, Menachem Wecker. Thank you so much for having me. With so many credits uh, and, and such a wide-ranging background, how why, how, and why did you get into uh, chess journalism? Um, I loved playing chess growing up. Um, and uh, I was actually trying to uh, to remember this because I thought it might come up in our conversation. I grew up in, in the Boston area. And I think I first, um, I, I think my mom probably taught me chess at first or one of my cousins and I started playing. And then there was a... Um, uh, at, at the library near my house in, in the Boston area, there was my, my memory is that it was an international master, but I don't remember if that, I'm not sure if that's uh, exactly accurate. But there was there was this man who who ran a kind of chess club, and I, I went and and remember losing a lot of games to him, which was very good for my ego. And then I think he was the one who pointed me towards some kind of a, a chess camp. I think it was in like winter break, not over the summer, but I. I went to that, and that's actually where I first uh, came across Chess Life magazine, which was something I read quite a bit as as a kid. So I, I think I've always been interested in chess. I don't play as much now as I I used to, and I was never all that good. But it's something that's that's really fascinated me, and that has found its way in small ways into 
um, a lot of my stories for years. And, and so there was, um, on, a, on a recent trip a few years back to Iceland, there was a story that, that I thought really had, had a central kind of focus on, on chess. And, and that's, a, I, that's why I think we, you and I were first in touch to, to talk about it a few years ago. Yeah, no, exactly. And we'll, we'll talk some more about that later on. Uh, but why don't you give our listeners a quick outline of what your article, Inhibition and Intuition, discusses and explores in this issue? Um, so uh, this was actually a really interesting uh, subject for me. I, I wrote this piece around the same time that I um, was working on a, another piece for uh, for a Jewish magazine, Hadassah, which, which had me looking at ways that museums are are welcoming to people with uh, with disabilities. So it was really interesting, actually, to be thinking about museums, which is a beat I cover quite a lot, and, and chess, which is something I don't uh, cover quite as much, and, and the ways that um, that there can be opportunities and challenges for people with with a variety of, of disabilities. The uh, inhibition and intuition looked at some of the things that come up in the intersection of, of chess and, and, and those with, um, uh, with autism. And, and, and there were a few themes that came out to me as I was talking to people, things that I, I really hadn't thought about a whole lot before. And, and, and maybe we want to get into those a little bit more in depth, but, but some of the things that really leapt out at me as a reporter, as I was working on the story was, um, number one, this this idea that when you are, and this could be true of other areas besides chess, but I think it's particularly true of chess, when you are in a kind of context where you know from the start that the other people in the room or or at the event are, are equally interested in, in a subject as you are, that in a lot of ways helps people who who struggle otherwise with picking up on cues when, when maybe they're talking a lot more about a subject than you know than, than maybe the other person with whom they're they're talking is um, you know is is interested and so chess for for a lot of people seem seems to be a, a kind of context where where if, if one is passionate about chess and, and and maybe struggles sometimes picking up on on social cues one knows that that the other people in the room are are likely also to be rather interested in in chess so that was one thing that um, that leapt out at me there was. I kind of rolled my sleeves up a bit and tried to to take a close look at some of the uh, scholarly attention that that this intersection of, of chess and, and autism spectrum disorder have, and, and it seems like um, there are some studies that 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 have quite a bit to offer, but maybe it's it's earlier in the research, and and there's a lot more research to be done. But but there are some scholars who've been looking at the ways that people who tend to play chess are are able. To kind of are able to focus and and potentially even to to be patient uh, uh, when they notice something maybe waiting and 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 understanding that there could be a better move down the road. So there's there's been some research um, in that kind of of area. I, some people talked about how being able to focus intensely on chess helped with you know kind of easing anxiety about other areas that maybe are not quite top of mind. Uh, you know, when one is focused in that kind of way. And so it was interesting to me that there were all the, oh, another thing seemed to be kind of more of a cultural kind of a thing. And this is something that I've experienced quite a bit, the way that chess is is a game and, and it creates a community around which there's quite a lot of acceptance of, of all different kinds of people from all different walks of, of life. I can't remember if this came up in the great recent conversation you had with, uh, with Jamal, who's, who's a friend and who's reporting on chess and on education, I greatly admire. I think when he was talking about this wonderful large set that lights up that he uh, brings out to uh, to parks at night, I, I don't remember if it came up also this idea that, um, you know, you can walk by any number of, of parks that have chess sets and, and maybe see somebody who's, you know, who's left the office and is in a business suit playing someone who might be homeless. And the way that, the way that this is a game that, that, can break down boundaries and kinds of ways and can welcome people from, from different walks of life. I think that's something that I was aware of before, but hadn't quite thought about in this context until I reported this particular feature. That actually leads into uh, a question I I had for you is, did you have any big surprises or changing of personal attitudes as you researched this article? Um, You know, I think I, this was a kind of piece that I went in without a whole lot of, of knowledge. So I don't know that I had, you know, sometimes in other stories, one of the most 
rewarding things as a reporter is obviously I try to go into stories without any biases and I try to suspend things that I already know and already and, and, and kind of already think and I try to at least initially in the reporting be a kind of sponge and, and take things in and but it's always wonderful when when I come out of a story and realize that the world works in a rather different way than I thought before I don't I don't know that there was an aspect of that here particularly because this was a new space for me to, to even go um, to even go digging in but I, I think um, you know, I think some of the best stories are ones where you really get to talk to people about how they live their everyday life and, and, and what things are rewarding to them and what things are challenging to them. So I think getting to talk to a few people, and I think this is something one, you know, one could write a book on this and talk to many more people. And obviously, I think I've, I've kind of barely scratched the surface here, but getting to talk to some of the people who ended up being characters in this story and, and, and hearing about how chess has helped them and about some of the things that they've struggled with outside of chess. That was something that I don't know that it was a huge surprise particularly, but it was really rewarding to me. I already read a very lengthy introduction of, of your, you know, your, your, your CV, but I, I want to read another lengthy quote um, from international master, Justin Sarkar from this article. Cause to me, it seemed to be the emotional heart of this piece. And it also speaks uh, very squarely to what U.S. chess is trying to do uh, in our mission and vision statement. And what I.M. Sarkar says is that words can hardly even describe the impact of chess on me or where I would be without chess. The inherent beauty of the game and personal benefits in fighting my illness speak louder than the implicit demands and stresses of chess tournament play to the point of it being more like a stress reliever and positive distraction than other things. Is there anything you can you can add to from your converse, your email conversation with Justin? Um, I don't have more to add from him, but I can say a little bit about what it you know what I took away from from his uh, from his saying that if um, if that's of interest. I, I think it it really struck me that um, you know I, I think a lot of people who play chess must have had experiences maybe when they were younger or or beginning to play where they would try to entice friends or family to play. And I think for people who don't play, the thought of sitting down and focusing and playing a chess game itself seems quite demanding and, and stressful. And and I thought it was so amazing that, you know, that that the more one kind of plays and the more one kind of dives into to the game, the more it, it could do quite the opposite. It, you know, rather than than uh, needing to get away from from the kind of linear and logical thinking that you know the need to to get away from being super focused you know i think that's a way that a lot of people alleviate stress but the way that that the kind of of uh thinking that that you know and, and kind of careful attention that goes into chess could at a certain point give way to to become a place that's that's relaxing and 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 comforting and that relieved stress. I think that was an amazing thing. It, it reminds me a bit of a lot of my reporting on art. I think there's a lot of people who go into museums or, you know, will look at a reproduction of a work of art and, and, and they kind of from the start assume that, that this is going to be a really complicated thing. And, and it's kind of art with a capital A and it, and it can be stressful for people because they feel like they need to understand it and whatever that means. And, and to, to be able to parse it and, and, and interpret it. And I, I think that, that, the mo- you know, I've been writing on art and going to museums for, for so long now. And, and the more I, I look at works, the more I, I realize that sometimes when you look long enough, you kind of, you almost feel like you dive beneath the surface and there's this wonderful symphony of, of colors and, and forms and the composition and, and that kind of beauty where things are balanced in, in unexpected kinds of ways and where a line on, on one side of the painting might be balanced with a triangle on the other. That reminds me, again, I'm not, I'm not a very good chess player at all, but the more I've, I've played, the more I, I sometimes get a sense of, of a similar kind of, of beauty that, you know, that, that a position can have where it ceases to be isolated pieces that are all kind of operating on their own, but it becomes symphonic. It becomes uh, interconnected in a kind of way. And so I think that in that, there can be this kind of of oasis from from stress that that I think people who don't play or don't play often might not expect, and maybe that's something that 
you know, that they could take away from, from this perspective or, or, you know, or even if they don't play chess to, to maybe think in a different way about, about a game. And another thing that occurred to me as I was thinking about uh, International Master Sarkar is that it would seem at first glance that people on the spectrum might be more common in the top ranks, but that doesn't seem to be the case in, in my just real quick uh, internal survey of our, of our top players. Do you, do you happen to know of any other uh, top titled players who are considered to be on the spectrum? I, I don't know the answer to that. I tried to look into that a little bit when I was reporting the story and I, I did not find, you know, good solid research on it. So, so I'm hopeful maybe, maybe one or, or several listeners, if, if, if they're aware of, of more information about that, I think it would be really great to know if they're able to, to send that in. I, I, I did see some reporting that suggested that some very prominent players who did not, you know, might be on the spectrum, but, I didn't feel comfortable reporting things if, if the players themselves did not admit it. And, and I think that historically, when one looks back also, there are, um, you know, there are some, some of the top players in history. There's speculation that they might have had, you know, might have been on, on the spectrum. I think for some of them, there wasn't even a thought about a spectrum back then. Some of this came up in the, that story about Bobby Fischer that I reported also. It, you know, it becomes a kind of, complicated thing to look back in into the past and to try to, you know, even for experts, I think, who spend all their time, uh, you know, diagnosing and, and working with people who, um, who struggle with something to, to look back, you know, it reminds me of, uh, I think Freud did a, a kind of reading of Leonardo da Vinci, maybe where he kind of looked back and almost psychoanalyzed him. That, that has to be really, uh, really error prone. So I, I, I didn't, I wasn't able to come across um, you know, any solid research to me that, that showed that there might be more or fewer um, people on the spectrum in, in the higher ranks of chess than one might imagine. But it, it certainly seems like, um, you know, from this report, it wouldn't surprise me if, if, if we found a large number. I just, I, I didn't see something definitive about that. Yeah, no, fair enough. And before we leave this topic and move on to some others, I, one thing that jumped out at me also is what appeared to be a little Easter egg that I think you, pro- I don't think you provided it on purpose. It was just part of your research, but a very famous name from the entertainment industry kind of jumped out at me. And I'm not going to say who, because I want to leave this for our readers and listeners to discover on their own. But do you happen to know who I'm referring to? Uh, <laughs> or suspect that, suspect that I, that you know? I don't. I might have to go back and look through this uh, <laughs> again. <laughs> So what, what I what I discovered when I saw that name is that the person you mentioned, the researcher you mentioned, is actually a uh, cousin of the person in the entertainment industry that uh, that made the name so familiar to me. So we, we'll just leave that for our readers and listeners to find on the road. I think I think you've managed to uh, entice listeners to reread to read the piece and me to reread the piece. And think about it. Yeah, whatever it takes to get people to op- open the magazine, right? Yeah. I want to talk about some of your other chess life work. And you've mentioned um, the, the Fisher piece a couple of times now. That appeared in the March 2018 issue, and we titled it Searching for Fisher's Legacy. Uh, let our readers know what, what that's about. And also, uh, let me say before you start talking, uh, listeners, if you're not aware, we now have our full Chess Life and Chess Review digital archives available on our website at uschess.org. So you can easily look up these um, these older articles. So, uh, Menachem, talk a little bit about this uh, article from 2018. Sure. Let, let me just add before I, I talk about it a couple of things. First of all, I think not only is, is Chess Life a really informative magazine where you're going to learn a lot, but it is beautiful from the layout and design perspective that, you know, sometimes as a reporter, I submit things into a black hole and you kind of entrust your words and, you know, to to teams and you hope it comes out looking nicely. And, and, and I anxiously await every time I have an article ready to publish. And I, and I think it's wonderful how it comes out. And, and then also just before I talk about this particular piece, this is one of the pieces in my career I've most enjoyed reporting. And so I just wanted to say, I'm really grateful to you personally for, for helping kind of shepherd it. 
Thank you. And let me jump back in uh, on that point as well and say a couple of things. Give a shout out to our uh, creative director, Frankie Butler, who's primarily responsible for the look of the magazine, our current editor, Melinda Matthews. And after you gave us that nice compliment, I need to make you aware of a unfortunate production error in this issue where we chose the wrong font color on your name in the article. And so it's very hard to read that your name is there, even though it is listed there. So my apologies to you, especially after those kind comments. I, I think if there's one thing that's going to be more difficult to read, the byline is, is fine. I think the story is, is great. So, um, <laughs> but so Fisher, you know, I've, I've long been interested in Fisher, like I think a lot of people um, have been. And, and my wife and I had a, a trip land to Iceland and, and Ireland. I was really excited about the Ireland part. I wasn't sure what to make of the Iceland part. And then I realized, oh, wait, there's this whole interesting chess history there. So we made a point um, to go out and, and see this this beautiful little idyllic uh, church where, where he's buried. There's a, a chess museum nearby. And, and I realized as I was, you know, as a religion reporter, I was really interested in, in Fisher's religious journey he was born jewish obviously he in you know it's complicated i think to you know i think this came out in the reporting also it's a little complicated to um to parse out what might have been something in the way of anti-semitism or self-hating on his part or what um might have been attached to you know maybe undiagnosed uh things with which he was grappling with but certainly he gets to a point where he is saying awful things about Jews, even saying it to his sister's children who are being raised Jewish. And so to me, the idea that he's buried in a church to begin with was was interesting enough that I wanted to go take a look. As I was talking to people in Iceland, though, it, it became fascinating to me that, that he's talked about in Iceland and, and remembered, I think, in such a different way than he is in the U.S. And, and, and I think that it's really hard um, for a lot of people to get beyond some of the the really awful things that that he had said, both about Jews and about the United States, some of it, you know, in the wake of the attacks against the um, the Twin Towers, and yet in Iceland, I think he was at least from the conversations I was having, it, it became clear that he was thought about as someone who kind of put that nation on uh, on the map, and, and and he was thought about as almost a kind of prodigal son returning when he came back. And so I thought, you know, a broader kind of culture, chess culture story would be what to do with his legacy, particularly at a time then. And, and, and you know, there's reasons even in the very recent news that, that this continues, but ways that, um, that we're rethinking legacies of people in the, in the public eye and, 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 and what we do with, uh, with someone who is enormously talented and inspiring in one sense, but but maybe exhibits things that that should not be role models in other ways. How do we, you know, how do, how do the rest of us, uh, whether it's somebody who's alive now, someone who you know who maybe passed away recently, or even somebody in the more distant past, and so some of those larger questions all seem to come together uh, to me in this piece, and, and getting to think about them in Iceland, getting to go um, spend some time at the. Um, Marshall Chess Club and, and getting to chat with um, with Frank Brady was was wonderful and fascinating and 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 just kind of getting a whole bunch of of diff different expert voices in this piece. Some people who knew Fisher, some people who had uh, you know studied him in a professional context. Other people who were inspired by him who never met him. But I, I don't know that there really is a, a clear answer. And maybe maybe posing the question is is more important than than having a tidy response but but how you know how young people in particular might draw inspiration from from some of the great things about um about this man but but also steer clear of of being inspired from from some really unfortunate things that he he said and did that's a really tricky um kind of thing to navigate no yeah ab absolutely and, and again listeners that's was the march 2018 chess life that is available on our website for a free download 
Your, your next article was in December 2018, Chess Sets and Conflict, subtitled, For Centuries, Chess Sets Have Done Double Duty as Political and Religious Symbols. Let our listeners know what, what they can find if they look this article up. Sure. Um, so this is also something that I've been tracking for a while, and I've traveled, uh, as a reporter who covers art and museums a lot, I've traveled a lot, particularly a lot in Europe, and um, uh, much to my my wife's disappointment when we travel, I, you know, I'll be up in the morning going through hours of museums before she even wants to get up and, and out of bed. And then it's time for more and more museums. So I, I, I spend a lot of time in museums looking at art. And so for a long time, I've noticed, uh, historical chess sets in, um, in museums. And I always gravitate, you know, I kind of see them from across the room and, and have to go over and take a close look and, some of them are more kind of abstract or, or geometric, but they're made from really beautiful materials. Others I started noticing would actually depict um, particular battle scenes or particular religious groups. So, you know, you might get the, um, you know, the Christians against the Moors in, in a Renaissance set, or you might get a particular battle between the French and the Spanish mapped out. There also are manuscript illustrations, and I believe some paintings also that um, kind of like what we were talking about a little while back about ways that chess can can bridge different communities. You would get illustrations that that might show um, in the Middle Ages, you know, maybe a Muslim man and a Christian man playing chess together. So this this idea, on the one hand, that um, and and again, this is kind of more of a culture of, of chess story, but but the the idea that at least in the artistic imagination and, and how often this actually happened in real life is, is debatable. And I'm not sure if there's been a good scholarly look at this, but at least in the artistic imagination, the idea that, that you could have different peoples who, you know, who might really not get along at all bonding over a chess set on the one hand. And, and the other way that, um, that chess sets over the centuries could become a way to, uh, you know, just, you've got black squares and white squares. You've got one side against the other. It, it feel, you know, the, the notion of a kind of battle is, um, it, you know, it, it, it's not an unusual thing to take away. If you, you know, maybe the first time you, you learn chess, that, that kind of metaphor, um, you know, is one of, of several that that's a really powerful metaphor. So the idea of, of either emphasizing difference or hopefully sometimes, um, you know, emphasizing ways that, that we can overcome differences by artistic embellishment of, of what the pieces are going to look like on either side. That, that's something that, that I had been kind of taking notes on and snapping pictures on easily for 15 years. And so it occurred to me that I, I finally had enough material to, um, to maybe put all, put all this together into a feature. And, and a real bonus was that I had been aware of a living artist um, who is an Orthodox Jew. Um, I had seen one of his chess sets at the Chrysler Museum in, in Norfolk, Virginia, and um, uh, a beautiful glass set. And I thought, oh, you know, I really should be mentioning that, you know, that you can see chess sets now that 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 have these kind of, um, you know, in his set it was Jews against Christians. And I hadn't realized that he lived in Baltimore. With, you know, so I had the chance to to go over to his home to to talk to him, to take some pictures of him, to get to see. Uh, some of his sets and, and pieces in person. And so that was really nice to to feel like there was this, you know, this kind of historical arc that went back to the Middle Ages and, and was really alive and, and well today, and that artists today were finding ways to put their own new kind of spin on things. And listeners, um, in addition to a, just a fascinating read, this article is is gloriously illustrated. There's wonderful photos of, of chess sets in there and other paraphernalia. So um, I, I strongly urge you to, to go look it up in your own copy or in the archives digitally if you if you don't have it. So I'm going to, it's time for our best question contest, which is our monthly chance for our listeners to send in their questions and win a $50 gift certificate to U.S. Chess Sales, which is the official chess shop of the U.S. Chess Federation. They're the largest chess retailer in the United States. From chess books, software to DVDs, from chess pieces to clocks to computers, U.S. Chess Sales is your complete one-stop chess shop. With over 5,000 items in stock, it offers same-day shipping and a low-price guarantee. Find it cheaper at any specialty chess retailer and we'll gladly match them. Shop today at www.uscfsales.com. 
And our winner of this month's contest is Eric Wiggins. And he asks, is there a rationale for separate tournaments for disabled players? Now, Menachem, I'm going to put that question to you, but I know you you don't consider yourself any particular expert in this in this area of of chess and uh, ability or accessibility issues. So I'm I'm curious about your feeling about this as a, just as a layman. Sure. Um, and first of all, I think Eric has has definitely earned that that fifty dollars. That, that's a great question. Um, I, I I don't know. Um, uh, I don't know that that came up in. Um, in my reporting, um, I, I, it seems to me to be a really interesting question. It came, I don't remember if it, which, uh, you know, it, it came up in your, I don't remember if it was your conversation with Jamal or, or with somebody else, but I, another thing I've been really fascinated by is, is, uh, the kind of question of, of tournaments, uh, for women and, and to what extent does, um, you know, does having a kind of event or, or tournament that is meant to, engage um, one particular group to what extent does that empower and create comfort and, and opportunity and and the like or to what extent does it emphasize difference and and um, you know potentially get in the way of, of everybody coming together and I know that there are people with strong feelings and good arguments on um, on both ends and and my thought is is always and I think this has come up in in some of your conversations also and I totally agree that it doesn't have to be either or, and that having opportunities for those who do feel more comfortable, um, you know, playing with, with people who are, who look like them, who go, you know, who've, who've gone through some, some struggles like, like they have, who've grown up in the kind of way they have or, or whatever the, um, the organizing, uh, kind of principle is for those who feel comfortable in that kind of context. I think that's great as, you know, if they're, as long as, as there are opportunities for everybody who wants to to come together and and compete and play and learn from one another and in larger contexts, that would be um, great too. So my my hunches, just as an outsider, kind of peering in, um, would be that um, that that it wouldn't surprise me if if there were a range of opinions on this, and if for some people, um, you know, having having a, a tournament or or you know some kind of group or community that that particularly allowed for, you know, players with autism or with any number of other uh, challenges or disabilities to, to come together and, and, and maybe feel more comfortable in a certain context, that would be great. But, you know, at the same time, I think it's really important that, that when there are, you know, that there be some context where everybody who wants to, uh, to compete together, um, you know, that everybody obviously is allowed to do so without being discriminated against. And you're absolutely right that there is a, a wide range of opinions on this. And another article that's in this special accessibility issue is by the chair of our U.S. Chess Accessibility and Special Circumstances Committee, Janelle Losoff. It's, it's titled Equal Access. And um, while I'm sure my our listeners are probably starting to get tired of me reading from the magazine this issue, let me read a little bit of what she wrote uh, at the end of her article. Someday open chess events will have typical players playing alongside players with disabilities. Playing halls will be universally and completely accessible. TDs and organizers will be well-trained in the provision of fair adaptations for players with disabilities. Easily accessible guidelines will include wisdom, procedures, and techniques for managing a fully accessible tournament with little cost to organizers, end quote from her. So it, it's th- this is an area where I, I kind of feel U.S. chess is taking the lead worldwide, and, uh, and I think it's an area for us to be proud of. Mr. Wiggins, thank you so much for your question, and it uh, your $50 gift certificate code is waiting for you in your email inbox. Menachem, we've talked a lot about chess, but as I mentioned at the beginning, you are a professional journalist who has uh, just happens to also have an interest in chess. Talk about what the life of a freelance journalist is like in this day and current climate. Uh, it's kind of like organized chaos. It's a, so I've been I've been a freelance journalist for just about seven years now, um, and uh, I've moved a couple of times in that. Um, in that span, um, uh, the way I see my job now, and, and this, you, you might talk to ten different freelancers and get at least ten different answers to this. But um, but the way I see things, first of all, obviously, um, 
with with a few exceptions, um, including the the Washington Post here in town, a lot of papers have had to cut back on their um, on their reporters. They have fewer full time reporters. A lot more, you know, they're relying a lot more on freelancers. The, at, I, I used to chair the membership committee at the press club where I'm now a board member now. And in my experience there and my experience at some of the uh, journalism conferences that I go to, there's just often there's a larger and larger percentage of freelancers um, at the conferences. That's not good for journalism and, and, and for the public interest, I don't think, but it, um, uh, it, it does create some opportunities for, for writers. And for me, it means that I can often be parachuting into totally different areas uh, throughout the day and 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 so i i see my beat in a larger kind of way than you know when i was at u.s news and world report i was uh mostly covering graduate business uh, uh medical and law schools and, and, and a little bit more graduate education uh uh programs um now I, i'm able to really think about what i want a, a lot of my pieces now i'm, I'm doing bigger features so i a lot of times I'm thinking, what do I want to spend six or nine months thinking about? What's a question I want to answer? What's a question that readers might uh, want to, to know more about and, and, and to better understand? And so um, I get to be much more kind of hedonistic in a way than, than I did before. And that's, um, that's really nice. I, um, you know, my, uh, my days, I, I either work from home or from the, the press club, but I, you know, I find where when I was at U.S. News, I was kind of chained to my desk quite a bit. I'm I'm able to be out and about a lot more now, which is good because talking to people in person and going and seeing things in person, you always see things that you, um, you know, that you would miss if you were, you know, if if you weren't if you if you weren't there on the ground. And um, and the other thing I think that I do is that because I know I'm competing with people who have full-time jobs and are covering a full-time beat i feel like the the kind of story for me is something kind of quirky or off the wall or that maybe takes a lot more time or has a bigger barrier of entry than most other reporters would want to take and that ends up i think being a really nice niche because i don't end up competing all that much so one of the pieces i think you mentioned um in the beginning uh you know i i got the idea that um there was a museum here in town that was being criticized quite a bit for um, the way that it was labeling objects that turned out to be fakes. And so I got to thinking and said, hey, what, what is the Smithsonian's reputation on this front? So for that piece, I went and committed myself over the course of, I don't remember what it was, a month, two months, um, to go look at every object on view at all the Smithsonian museums here in D.C. So that's all the museums on the mall, the National Gallery, which is not technically Smithsonian, the uh, American Art Museum and Portrait Gallery, and a couple of other museums in town. And so I was spending... I don't know, five, six, seven hours at some of these museums. The Natural History Museum here has like 8,000 gems alone. I looked at every single one. And I decided by looking at every label, I tried to make the most definitive list that I could of objects that were facsimiles or replicas or copies that were either poorly labeled or not labeled or labeled in ways that were inaccessible to most visitors. That's kind of an insane thing that somebody who had a a full-time journalism job who had to churn out daily pieces or weekly pieces would not be able to do. And so I, I like that. I kind of have the freedom to, to structure my time, to, to throw a lot of time at something or, or uh, sometimes even to start on a piece and then let it sit for a few months and then come back to it and, and realize that my way of thinking or the kinds of questions I wanted to ask had changed over that time. So I, I think it's, it's really rewarding in that kind of way on the opposite side. And I, you know, in case there's people out there who are, who are, you know, wanting to, to go down this path, it's, you know, it's isolating in the sense that one doesn't have coworkers and, uh, and it can be rather kind of chaotic in administrative ways as well. So it's like a lot of things, I think it's a kind of, of mixed bag, but when it's, when it's good, it's, you know, you get to, you know, I'm calling up world experts and asking questions I've always wanted to know the answer to and getting to, to learn on on the job and it's really an amazing privilege to be able to do that so i i've got to ask how long did it take you to research all those thousands and thousands of objects um so i you know I, i'm somewhat limited in um you know in my ability to determine whether something is real or not i'm, I'm taking a close look I'm, I'm making my best educated guess um you know i, I 
I can't remember exactly how many museums it was, but it was, it was many, many, you know, it was many, many hours of looking at these things, photographing them, going home, thinking about them, interviewing the museums about some. Um, one of the museums had to change a label, which was deceptive to, um, to visitors as a result of my reporting, which, you know, I think the label is still a little bit confusing, but it's, it's much more clear than it was before. And the nice thing about this, again, as a freelancer that I knew is that I was going to spend all this time going and, you know, I think most people come into a museum and look at a few things or look at one exhibit and leave. I was going into these museums knowing that I had to be careful. I wanted to make sure I was going into every room and at least looking quickly at every object in, in every room. And, and I'm not as young as I once was and kind of all this walking around added up a lot, but I knew that in the process of doing all this by seeing everything, of course, I was going to get other story ideas. I was going to notice patterns and, and things. So it, it, it felt like something that was going to be productive on, on multiple levels. And, and of course it was, there were other stories that came out of it, but there was no shortcut here. Like, I, you know, to, to come up with as definitive a list as I could, I had to go and stand in front of, of everything and, and look at it. And, and some of it, you know, there was, there was a, a number of patterns I noticed. So one thing that stuck out was at the uh, American History Museum, there was a kind of motor that was labeled as a conjectural, uh, re, uh, con what was it? conjectural restoration. And I was thinking, like, I went to grad school for art history. I go to museums every week, sometimes almost every day. I'm standing here scratching my head saying conjectural to me means that we're guessing restoration means that we're returning something to what we know it once was like, this is a contradiction and, and knowing that so few people read labels to begin with. And if they do read it, what kind of fighting chance do they have of understanding what they're looking at? To what extent do museums want to be doing the uh, kind of equivalent of a commercial you might see on TV or in a magazine where, where a product or a, you know, a, a medicine is, is declared to solve all of your problems. And then if you're able to read the fine print as it scrolls quickly across the screen, or you break out your magnifying glass and see at the bottom of the page, and you see that a side effect is that maybe it'll kill you. Like that, that's not necessarily a standard that the Smithsonian wants to hold itself to. So that was something kind of running in the back of my head as I, I went through this. But I, I think another benefit in all this was that I just, you know, I like the job that I had assigned myself was going and looking at every single one of you know, an amazing collection, a world-class collection with amazing objects, each of which had their own story to tell. So even as it it kind of took a lot of energy and concentration to do this, it was an incredible privilege to get to look at all these things. All these museums are free, which is um, incredible also. So it kind of felt like work and play at the same time. So if we have any young high school or college-age kids who are considering a career in journalism uh, in, in 2020, what, what is the approach you would recommend to someone who wants to uh, eventually pursue a career in journalism? Um, you know, I, it's interesting because I, I've gotten to know, you know, a lot of my colleagues at the, at the press club, I've, I've, I've got, you know, I've realized that I, I kind of came into journalism in a rather different way than everybody else um, did. My, my high school didn't have a, a paper. It was too small. I think it might have one now. But when I got to college in New York, there was a paper and I thought, I want to be going to museums anyway. I might as well start writing about them and, and get a press pass and be able to get access to some things. And I just wrote, I think I wrote 150 pieces in my three years on, on campus. So I just wrote a ton. I ended up meeting someone at a conference who uh, wrote a column and he brought me on as a, um, you know, as a, a guest columnist. And then I took over the column for a while. And so I, I got my first paid gig as I think as a sophomore or maybe going into my uh, junior year. My, my sense is a lot of people who, um, uh, who find their way in, into journalism are getting great experience at their, at their college papers. Um, I, um, I know that I know there's a lot of, you know, we have a attracting membership at the press club for students and, and I've seen um, a lot of really impressive applicants who are studying journalism or who are, um, on the on the paper, a lot of them end up coming to the club and, and networking, and, and that's um, that's great. Also, I think the kind of path that um, that people used to take of working your way up at a at a small local publication, and then eventually kind of transitioning from that and getting a bigger gig, I think that's a lot harder than it once was. A lot of the smaller papers are 
are struggling. Um, I think when I got started, I just thought I was going to be really hungry and I was going to write for any rate I could. I, I, in the beginning, I wrote a lot of stuff for free to get my byline out there. And, um, and, and I think that's, that's hard. I know that's hard for some people to do. Um, and, and so they're, you know, in a sense, if one is, is able to go to a great journalism school and afford that, if one can afford to take on an internship that's not paid or to write for free for a while, that that's something that requires other kinds of security or, or means or, or support. And that's not an option for everybody. But, but I, you know, in the beginning, I felt like I just was going to take any opportunity I could. I was going to publish as widely as I could. And then after I'd, I'd done enough of that and had clips to, to show around, I tried to think a little bit more about you know, what kinds of publications do I want to be writing for and, and where do I want to go? I, I, I would say also that I, I, I think that, you know, a lot of this has changed now. You can reach out to a reporter, who, you know, whose work you admire on Twitter. It was a lot harder to find someone's phone number or email address uh, um, when I was getting started. But my impression is that there's a lot of people, journalists out there who are very accomplished, who are, um, you know, who are anxious to and excited to help mentor um, younger people. And so my my thought there is that probably a lot of people are intimidated and think, well, this person must get a ton of, of, of inquiries and, you know, and, and questions and, and, and the like. And so I'm not even going to gonna ask. But I think that's probably the wrong approach. I think if there's someone who's established whose who's work a young person um, really admires, you know, some, obviously some people are, are – you know, more willing and able to, to help. Some people are on really tight deadlines. It might take a while to, to respond. But, but my sense is that, you know, um, you know, journalism is a profession one goes into because one loves talking to people and, and, and understanding people. And so I think that it's, it's kind of rare that, um, that you have people who aren't willing to, um, to try to help out someone getting started or to, um, uh, you know, to offer some advice or, and I, I agree, and I, I would like to echo what you said um, uh, about working for free at the beginning. Uh, when I did a career switch in my 30s uh, to become a freelance writer, uh, for, for a good year I was giving away work for free just to build experience and to um, build a clippings list. Uh, but one thing that's available now that uh, was not available to me then or, or you when you were starting out is you know websites, you know, being able to put up your own website and publish as much as you want on your own website just to, to get experience and show samples of, of what you can do. And another thing I'd like to point out is to any aspiring journalists uh, who want to specialize in chess writing, please don't be intimidated by Menachem Wecker's um, A-list publications list. You don't need that to come write for Chess Life or Chess Life Online. We've hired many a high school student who are writing for publication for the very first time. If you've got talent and ability and an interesting story to tell, please uh, pitch it to us, and you can find the contact information at our website on uschess.org. So, Menachem, is there anything you want to leave our uh, listeners with? Is If they want to contact you, uh, and we, we mentioned your website, get, you know, plug that as well. Uh, sure. Yeah, I always love to hear from people. Um, um, my wife is in the process of helping me redesign my website, so hopefully it won't be under uh, temporary maintenance when someone takes a look. But it's um, menachemwecker.com. Uh, I know that might not be easy for everyone to spell, but M-E-N-A-C-H-E-M-W-E-C-K-E-R. Uh, uh, -E -E I have a, a contact tab there, and I always uh, love to hear back from people. Uh, I think what you were just describing is a fantastic uh, opportunity for young people who want to write. I mean, this is a, this is a great magazine with a great audience and, 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 uh, between getting to work with you and, and with Melissa, it's, uh, you know, fantastic editors. And, and so that I, you know, this would be a great, um, opportunity for, um, I think for anybody who's interested in, in chess probably knows a lot more about chess than, than I do. So that part of the, the research I think would probably be a lot easier for that. Um, for that person. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the only other thing I would say also, this is maybe also for someone getting started is, is I think it's, it's, it's always been important, but I think it's, it's probably even more important right now to, to really set the bar tremendously high for vetting, making sure that, um, that facts are facts, making sure that, um, 
you know, I think when I first got started writing, I thought, well, if I'm interviewing someone and they say something and I'm going to put it in quotes, that's on them. And, and it's not my responsibility to make sure that, you know, I'm not saying it myself. So, so let's just insert that into the story. I, I changed my way of thinking on that rather quickly. And, and I think that, um, you know, what, one of the things that's, that's challenging and takes a lot of time about, um, about journalism is also, I think, the thing that makes it really important, which is really combing through things, making sure every, uh, not only every letter and every word, is, you know, is kind of telling the story in, in the most engaging kind of way, but also that, that what's being shared is true and, and corroborated and, and um, you know, and, and free of, of opinion. If it's not an opinion piece, magazine writing, obviously there's a little bit more uh, you know, the different kind of tone and, and style. But I, I think that's really um, important because I think that there's a lot of, of ways that people can get really smart, good commentary and and opinion. But I think journalism has been important and will continue to be important if it can it can tell things straight and 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 um, and get the facts right. We didn't talk about one of the other pieces that I um, wrote, I, I can't remember when it was, I don't, maybe it was from last month or, or the month before about this fascinating, um, person I talked to who's based in, in Vienna and thought that he was, he, he feels strongly that he was the one who, um, played table tennis with, with Fisher in, um, in Iceland and, and, and helped put him at ease and, and keep him in the games. And, and that piece was, uh, the reporting was fascinating and, and fun, but I would say I spent way more time on the the researching and trying to document, you know, he kind of laid out some of the uh, potential problems with things that he was saying to me. So that was helpful from the start, but trying to, you know, it became this kind of fascinating rabbit hole to go down and, and try to make sure that, that there was documentation of whatever could be documented and all. So that, that would be my advice also to, to someone who's getting started, you know, and I, I think it's something that those of us who've been doing this for, um, for a bit longer and we've been doing it for a lot longer than I have also are, you know, continue to, to try to set the bar really high for that because I think that um, that's where uh, all kinds of, of publications can really serve, serve the public interest by, by helping report things straight, getting the facts and, and, uh, and you know, and, and, and in so doing kind of, uh, you know, opening up areas that could be difficult or potentially uh, controversial or, or corrupt or the like by shedding as much sunlight on them as possible. And also putting the lie to the whole hashtag fake news idea. Right. Yeah. So with, right. with that little uh, 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 maybe a snarky comment from me at the end, <laughs> thank you very much, Menachem, for joining us on our March edition of Cover Stories with Just Life. It was a fascinating article. It was a fascinating discussion. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was not. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Cover Stories with Chess Life. Our podcast will return on the first Tuesday of next month when we will again be making a deeper dive into the pages of Chess Life. U.S. Chess is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose educational mission is to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. To become a member, go to uschess.org and click on the Join button where you can find a membership option that is right for you. As a member, you enjoy rated play, print and digital copies of Chess Life for Chess Life Kids, and you help U.S. Chess grow the game. If you are already a member, consider clicking on the donate button at uschess.org. Thank you and good chess.